So welcome to season two of the comic book cabinet from Back Patio Network. If you don't recognize my name because you skipped season one and went straight into season two, my name is Wes. And my name is Adam. And hopefully, if you didn't listen to season one, you'll go back and check it out because we put a lot of time into it and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> we did. Uh, and we covered a lot of different sets of comic books in season one. And I had a blast learning how to read comics. Believe it or not, it's a skill you can learn. You don't have to be born with it. Yeah, and in fact, we actually did like a, a half-season premiere where we talked about the two galaxies colliding of Marvel and DC. So hopefully everyone out there enjoyed that as well. And it was terrible. No, it wasn't awful. I and enjoyed it. Was it, it, it was cheesy. It was so corny. very cheesy. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you can definitely check that out as our teaser. But this is now season two. And Adam, what are we going to cover this season? So in season two, we decided to take a break from reading a thousand comics for every episode. Uh, we are actually just going to be reading graphic novels, which for the most part, most graphic novels, you know, 200 to maybe 300 pages, like not nearly as much content to read as we were. And while doing some research, we've learned that graphic novels can have a, a several issue story arc. Uh, we're going to mostly keep these two single issues, which are the two to 300 page region. Yeah, I mean, some graphic novels, like, I'm thinking, like, Batman has a bunch of graphic novels that are, like, 500 pages, and there are five or six parts of that graphic novel, so each one, like, the uh, the series with Bane and all of that, that's that's a huge graphic novel that people buy in chunks. Uh, Hellboy is always sold in graphic novel volume, so these, the ones that we're covering this season are going to be more so your contained storylines. They, they don't have these, like, huge galaxies or universes that you're going to be able to go out and buy more issues of. So this brings up, what is a graphic novel? What separates a graphic novel from just a collection of comic books that you can buy at the end of a year that have several different issues inside of them? A lot of times, uh, graphic novels are typically longer, and they tend to be a lot more complex, too. I mean, it's not like these simple story arcs that are just going to take place over two or three issues uh, and then maybe be brought back up never again or once you know later on in the comic series they they typically tell like an entirety of a story a beginning a middle and an end and a lot of times if it contains a comic book character that you're familiar with that has their own series they don't always cross those storylines uh, so like there are a lot of bat like i mentioned batman or spider-man graphic novels that don't actually have any effect on the main storyline going forward in the actual weekly comic or monthly comic so a good description is a self-contained storyline, uh, maybe a longer form than just 20 or 30 pages. And uh, a lot of times they have a more serious or even a darker tone is what I've noticed with a lot of these uh, graphic novels that we've looked at so far. Yeah, and you know, sometimes graphic novels actually open up the ability to have a comic book. Like, take The Watchmen, for instance. It's a super popular graphic novel. I don't think anyone that's listening to this po this podcast has never heard of The Watchmen. Even if you listen to season one, I'm sure one of us brought it up at some point in time. However, it has opened up its own little universe where The Watchmen now have before The Watchmen, and those characters are now being included in the DC universe, so it became something more. So graphic novels have the ability to evolve, but they are, in essence, a little bit different than comic books. So what do you think was the very first graphic novel ever produced? Was it Watchmen? 
No, no. I mean, you know, I, I Googled this, and uh, the Google machine told me that the adventures of Obadiah Oldbuck are the first graphic Sorry, novels. What? Yeah, I don't, it's, it's called The Adventures of Obadiah Oldbuck, and that, <laughs> that comes from Diamond Bookshelf, uh, their website, which is the Diamond Company. Like, this is a huge comic book company, so if they're claiming that this is the first graphic novel, I guess they have some sort of, like, presence to say that. But at the same time, when I went and looked up some of these, they just look like old newspaper comic strips. Okay. So I don't know why they would have considered that a graphic novel. Okay, so if that's what a graphic novel is, what was the very first graphic novel that you ever read? So I want to say the first graphic novel that I ever read was Watchmen. Uh, I remember reading it when I was a kid, but I, I feel like I was so young that I don't really... I didn't grasp anything from it. Like it was just a fun comic book that someone had left behind and I found. Um, hmm. What I would say my first real graphic novel was that that was probably separate from a universe that became its own kind of like Watchmen was actually Old Man Logan, which a lot oh. of people know now from the, the movie uh, yeah. Logan. So, yeah, that was a really good movie. I really enjoyed that. Oh, if you think that movie is good. Graphic novels a thousand times better. Yeah, so we are going to take the time later in this episode to compare the graphic novel to the movies because in a lot of cases, graphic novels just, they make really good movies. They've already been storyboarded. All you have to do is just follow the images. Like It makes it easy on a director, producer, creative team to create a movie from a graphic novel. Most of it's right there in front of you in visual format. In fact, there are some authors that will not write graphic novels. Like, they won't actually finish their, their graphic novel unless they already have a company that signed off on a movie. I mean, can you blame them? Yeah, I That's mean, Mark Miller is pretty popular for that. I, I don't yeah. know that for certain that he's come out and said that, but it's pretty obvious that if right. he writes something in a graphic novel form, a lot of times it gets turned into a movie. Or somebody's like, oh, you have a graphic novel. Well, here's your movie contract. Anyway, I'm going to just go ahead and flat out say we will almost never pick the movie over the graphic novel. It's just, we'll see. We'll see, but I have a feeling most of the time I enjoy reading the book's always better than the movie because I get yeah. to make up a lot. I get to make up what the voices sound like and what some of the action between the panels are like. But we are going to talk about the movies a little bit. So what was your first graphic novel, Wes? Oh, I have read graphic novels before. I had a friend that loaned me some. He had a bookshelf full of them. And I believe it was either The Watchmen, which is fairly typical, right? If you are trying to get somebody hooked on graphic novels, you're going to hand them Watchmen. Or the uh, but yep, I believe two. it was uh, Preacher. Oh, really? See, I've never read Preacher. That's that's one that's kind of never been on my radar. Oh, I don't know how, man. That was, and we were talking about darker storylines, longer form storytelling, and this is a graphic novel that was broken up over several different volumes. So if you read mm-hmm. the first volume of this one, then you had to continue reading. I think it was ten volumes, maybe, and each one was about sixty or seventy pages long. So it was. Very, very long, but oh my God, there's so much about Preacher that I loved. It was just dark, it was gritty, it just rude. There's a series that came out over the last two years, I think it's been the last two years, that I picked up that uh, was an old graphic novel named From Hell, mm-hmm. and I think it's all based off like an old movie maybe. There, like, There's a lot of content behind it, but they are actually redoing it, and they it's coming out in a colored form, and so I've been picking that up in hopes to you know read it from beginning to end. Um, but that's, that's neat that it, the reason I say that is because it, it's been released in the same volumes like Preacher was, it sounds like. Yeah, so nice. yeah, that's, yeah. that's pretty neat, man. And when it comes to Westerns, I love Westerns. So if it has a Western theme, I'm going to read it. I'm probably, 
probably going to love it. Well, you know, some of the original first comic books were old westerns. That's kind mm-hmm. of where some of the comic books got their start, you know? Spaghetti westerns were a thing at that point in time as well. People loved them. So we have lots and lots of plans for season two, and I can't wait for people to find out what comic books and graphic novels we will be covering this season. However, today we are going to be covering I Kill Giants from Image Comics. And what a graphic novel we are going to be covering. This is, I think this is the perfect one to get the season started because it is just, it is filled with so much awesome content, just raw emotion, just great storytelling, great characters. I mean, this is just the, a big bang for season two, if you ask me. And it made me cry at least three separate times while reading it the first time. I cried watching the movie. I cried reading the graphic novel the Mm -hmm. second time. Like, just tears just pouring out of my eyes because you just get so connected to the main character. It's incredible. Yeah. I Kill Giants was written by Joe Kelly. The art and design was done by Ken Niamura. And the movie was produced by a huge name in the movie world. He directed Home Alone, Home Alone 2, Mrs. Doubtfire. He helped produce Harry Potter. And I didn't recognize his name, and he wrote the preface for I Kill Giants. So, of course, we had to look up who the heck he was, right? It's Chris Columbus. Yeah, and I didn't recognize the name either. When we started looking up who this man was, it was like, wow, I've seen just about everything he's produced. Yeah, And in the preface, he talks about how comic book covers no longer represent the artwork on the inside of the comic. And in picking up I Kill Giants on the comic book shelf, he was immediately pulled in and found out that the artwork inside the book was represented by the artwork on the outside. And this is something that probably came up a little bit in season one. You have these artists that do the inside of the book, and then you have cover artists that will do the outside. The the inside art's not always the same person as the cover art. So, I mean, this has happened to me a bunch, and I'm sure it even happened to you, where like you see the front cover of an issue, and you're like, oh, man, this is going to be insane. And yeah. you get into it, and the artwork is like barely the same at all. And like the front cover may not even have anything to do with what happened in the issue. It's and like they so didn't even read it. Yeah, and and so something that Image Comics does that I really appreciate, and they do this with a lot of their comics, the front covers are often pretty simple, depending on who the artist is. That's not the case for all of them, but things like East of West and uh, Manhattan Project was another one that they did I really enjoyed. And I Kill Giants, the front covers are typically very easy. I mean, they're simple, and they are the same artwork that you're going to find inside the book. Uh, it's a bold color on the front, and then just the simple line drawing of uh, what, a teenage girl with bunny ears yeah. typically is what you see associated with I Kill Giants. Uh, and the artwork inside uh, of I Kill Giants, it's all very simple lines. A uh, little bit of shading, but not. it doesn't go overboard. Um, and the book is all in black and white. Yeah, and you know, I really like the artwork for this book. It's good, but I feel like sometimes it was a little busy. Um, and that really? may just be my opinion. Yeah, it, to me, there were just there were some panels where it's clearly supposed to be two pages. I read the digital version, so that doesn't come as clear, you know. But whenever you've got the book in front of you, sometimes you'll open it up and like there are two pages that are one big panel because mm-hmm. it's just such it's such an epic scene, you know. And some of those just kind of missed the mark for me on this one, only because there was so many things going on that 
it, it just felt too busy to me. That's really odd because I felt the exact opposite. That really? everything was extremely <laughs> simple and uh, nothing was busy. Because some of the scenes, and especially from the 1980s comics that we read for Spider-Man, Iron Man, and those guys, like those were busy and there was so much going on in the That's background. True. Like you could spend five, ten minutes just looking at uh, one or two panels and trying to decipher what's there, and it never felt that way yeah. in reading I Kill Giants. Like, everything was really in the forefront. The stuff that needed to be in focus was in focus. The background was just something very simple and not too much overall. Yeah, yeah, you've got a good point. Uh, well, we've talked about the artwork, man. We've talked about the team. Let's talk about the book. I can't wait sure. to get into this. I don't know that I'm going to be able to make it through without breaking down into tears. So Well, we if may we do have to get break. emotional... You know, it's okay. we'll see. I hope our audience will understand if there is an odd lull while we go and get some Kleenex. So chapter one starts right off. Uh, it's called The Hammer. And I mean, you pick up an issue of a comic book and it starts off with The Hammer. You're like, all right, what are we getting into? That's a pretty epic first chapter title, if you ask me. And it introduces this character named Barbara. And it introduces kind of her mythology behind this thing that she's carrying. It looks like a little pocketbook. Uh, and she's doing this like ritual over it. And she's talking about, you know, the naming it like Thurisaz, and there's this big mythology behind this little heart-shaped pocketbook that's got like a hammer sewn into the front of it. Uh, and she says something along the lines of, take the force of my enemies and send it back to him a thousand, thousand times. And she like spreads some blood over the inside of this pocketbook to finalize the ritual. And so right off the bat, there's just this immediate like, what in the world is happening here? You yeah, know? and... It's very like Eastern philosophy. Like in Tai Chi, you learn to take the force of your inner the the force from your inner enemy and send it back to him. But also very Viking esque in all of the symbols that she's using with these nice pointy uh, line drawings that she's doing, uh, and then sending the enemy back a thousand thousand times. It's just beautiful. And Barbara, we find out a fair bit about her in chapter one. Chapter one basically just sets up Barbara as a whole. We find out that she plays Dungeons and Dragons and she is the GM. Uh, then there's this scene where she has to go upstairs, and it's a very nice piece of artwork in this one where she, it's this meek little girl standing at the bottom of a extremely long staircase, and she's staring up at it. And then we see the staircase from her point of view, and it's this long staircase. It's covered in shadows, and there's like these little things in the shadows, like almost growing there, and there's just this shaft of light from the window. And we don't know why she is afraid of upstairs at this point point um, no we don't and, but and she has this like super active imagination yeah up until this point i mean we've seen her going from like her school to home and all throughout the day she's got these little like pixies and fairies around her and she's pretty much not paying attention in class and she's not paying attention to any other girl she's reading like a dungeon master's guidebook and she's just really into like this fantasy world that she probably would love to live in you know so i think she tries to surround herself by that as well and as role players ourselves, where we're playing on rocks and rune lords, we kind of get this girl. Like, we just understand the world that she lives in. It's definitely epic and different than what any other person is living in 
in her world. Absolutely. And right off the bat, you kind of get the idea that there's something going on at home because when she shows up at the house and she's looking up at the staircase, there's no one home. She's asking like, hey, anybody here? And after we get this awesome scene with whatever is going on here, her sister walks right in the door. So this leads into kind of introducing a lot of the supporting characters that we'll talk about for the rest of the episode near the end of chapter one. Uh, Barb has set up a Dungeons and Dragons game and it looks like she's got some friends over and there's someone that's making dinner uh, named Karen. We, we are aware that her name is Karen at this point. And it's great because she's leading these guys through this game and there's one that just wants to like shove a spear up an ogre's ass, you know, and he's just being kind of lewd, not really playing. He just wants to goof off. And you can tell like Barb takes... GMing seriously. She needs people to be playing the game. Kind of like when we play Rocks and Rune Lords, you know? Like, you don't want us just goofing off. You want us playing our characters and in the game. So, they kind of get into a small argument. He kills... She kills his character off, and uh, the sister comes over with the food, and they're in the middle of an argument, and she says, all right, well, game's over anyways. You know, food's ready, and the dice gets slammed into this bowl of, like, galosh. It doesn't even look like real food, you know? And uh, this is kind of the moment where you realize like there's definitely some drama happening between these three or four people. Uh, and so the, the man storms off, Barb's upset, the sister's upset, and we kind of see the end of this scene pale and pan out because Barb is now sitting out on the front porch just by herself. And this, this scene here furthers her imaginative spirit because she's actively watching these little like brownies play with like a ball. Like you can't really tell what they're doing quite yet. Uh, but there are pixies everywhere. And I like how they show her imagination. Like you can get that the pixies are probably not real. They're hiding in the grass and stuff, but then you get this nice big open shot of what she's seeing. And it's all this like superimposed uh, white lines over everything where these, fantastic creatures like it almost looks like a dragonfly and maybe a bull over on the side and like fish swimming through the air she just her imagination i'm actually really jealous of at this point yeah it's very very interactive and she's sitting here talking to these pixies and she says something along the lines of like ah, you know what karen's family so she's poop for brains like it or not she's still family and the thing with Karen that was a little confusing when I read this the first time is who was Karen? Mm -hmm. At first, she looks like the mother because she's coming in from buying groceries and then she's cooking dinner for everybody. And then she talks about going to work. So, But you find out it's actually her sister. It's Barbara's sister is Karen. Like, And where's the mom? Where's the dad? Uh, who's taking care of this family? Why is Karen taking care of Barbara and her brother? Right, right. And you can tell that it's a little bit later at night, so maybe mom and dad just aren't home from work yet. You know, maybe they work night shift. We, we just don't know. Uh, and this kind of transitions us into chapter two, which is called The Spark. And this introduces the much wider cast that we're really going to get to know over the next couple of uh, probably hour and a half or so. Uh, we see Barb is out at the beach. It's still that same night, I believe. You can kind of tell, even though it's black and white, you can see the streetlights are on. So I like to think it's the same night. She's out checking these traps. Like she's got these traps set up. They're hanging up on a pole. They're super stinky. And there's like a line under some sand. Uh, and this little girl appears and her name is Sophia. 
Sophia. And she says, like, oh, hey, you know, just moved in. Uh, my name's Sophia. And right off the bat, Barb is very standoffish. Doesn't even say anything. In fact, it's just got a panel of her, like, smirking with, like, dot, dot, dot. Where Sophia's got this really smiley face. Uh, she says something along the lines of, like, you know, what are you playing? Because if you're playing a game, I'd love to start playing with you. And a Barb goes right into, this isn't a game. This is real. Overactive imagination. So Barbara storms off. She goes home, and we get to encounter that staircase again. Except this time, there's like a skull in the shadows. Like oh, it's you so just creepy. get this, uh, you just get this really creepy image, and it's ambiguous enough. Like maybe it's just the shadows, maybe it's not the a skull or anything. But then you look closer, and yeah, it's definitely something where like you can see the eyes and the teeth. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then there's it, this terrible like wailing coming from the upstairs and it's just Barbara and it's written in this really creepy text. The the artist's use of font throughout this book is pretty epic and how he's able to convey what you're hearing. And this is a good example of that. If you get a chance to read the book, like just you got to enjoy this part. Yeah, it's, they did a really good job. And I don't know that I've read any other comics that utilized font the way that this, this graphic novel does. Not to this extent, yeah. yeah. Um, there's other instances where you can tell like the person's whispering to themselves or mumbling something under their breath. And it's just written in this really tiny font like when you're reading the book in physical form you have to actually get really close to the book to read it or break (laughs) out your magnifying glass almost a lot of times i feel like they'll just kind of skimp out on that and draw squigglies to to you know insight whispering Mm -hmm. uh but this this way is just so much better because you can almost Uh, you can almost hear what they're thinking at this point without doing actual thought bubbles from the 1970 versions of iron man Right. And, and, you know, to be fair, right off the bat of this interaction with Sophia and Barb, you get this feeling that they are character foils of each other. Uh, Barb is very much so stuck in her fantasy world, whereas Sophia feels really grounded. Uh, so their friendship develops and it's going to be great. And we see that start to happen in the very next scene. In fact, uh, they're at school the next day. Uh, you know, Barb's sitting there eating. She's pretty much by herself. I mean, she's got friends around her, but she's like got her face in a book. And you can only assume it's that Dungeon Master book she was reading from chapter one. And we see uh, the first introduction of Taylor, who is kind of the school bully. She's got like this little group of girls that appear to just be incredibly mean, awful. They are not nice to anybody. Uh, In fact, she stands up right behind Barb and Barb says, excuse me, you're in my light. Like I can't read my book now. And she turns around and here is Taylor, who is just like I said, just cruel and mean. The way they draw her, she just looks like someone you don't want to talk to. She's a big girl. She's wearing uh, this jacket oh, that has the spiky collar thing going on with her two cohorts standing behind her looking very devilish. And uh, I actually just saw this for the very first time, but the shirt that Taylor is wearing yeah. says <laughs> Devalicious. I'm not sure what she's wearing around her neck, but it almost looks like one of those Naruto headbands. Uh, I don't know if you know what that is. Anyways, she actually is immediately right off the bat bullying Barbara. And she says, this is my table. You owe me a toll. Give it all or I find or give it or all I find I keep. And uh, this is great because Barb just looks at her hand and spits in it. Gross. And she says, that's all I got. Keep the change. Oh, man, Barbara is pissed at this point. And, uh, and they're about is... to get into a fight when someone calls Barbara to Miss Molly's office. Yes, Miss Molly, who is the very sweet, very kind, very patient uh, school psychologist. 
I mean, to be called to the school psychologist from the lunchroom at the top of the lunch lady's lungs, everybody in the school knows you're going to the school shrink. Yeah. And before we move on too far, I do want to say I love to think that with the way that Barbara's fantasy brain works, she just envisions Taylor as a bridge troll. Oh, yeah. So we are now sitting in a room with Miss Molly and Barbara, and Miss Molly's kind of just introducing herself, like, yeah, I just moved here, I'm really new, I'd like to get to know you, I've already been told, don't eat the beef teriyaki, but like, what do you think about this place? You know, just small talk, trying to get to know this kid. And she really, you can tell just by the way she's talking that she wants to help Barbara. We don't really know what she wants to help her with yet, but she's there, and you get that feeling that she's just this really good role model. And Barbara pretty much immediately off the bat doesn't want to say anything. Uh, and Miss Molly's like, hey, we're just really wanting to get to know each other, you know. And uh, she says, what about your pocketbook? I love your pocketbook. It looks really nice. What, is, what does Kovaliski mean? And she sees on this, this pocketbook that we know as the hammer, there's a word written on it, Kovaleski. And Barbara says, strike one, gets up and starts walking out. Barbara is such a jerk. Even she to adults. Be. Yeah. Just, I mean, she just doesn't feel like she has to waste her time on other people. And other than a jerk, I guess another way to describe it is strong-willed and independent. Very independent. She even tells Miss Molly, like, oh, by the way, next time, use a Skyrider to calm me down. Uh, it's a little less embarrassing. She's, she's not too happy about everybody knowing where she had to go next. So right. then we're introduced to another conflict with Taylor at a water fountain. Taylor slaps her in the face, and then uh, uh, Barbara actually looks over her shoulder for some backup from Sophia, and Sophia has disappeared. And I don't even know that like Sophia was really there. She, yeah, she was there to begin with, because they were walking to the bus together, and mm -hmm. Sophia's disappeared, Barb's on the ground, and it looks like Taylor's about to just beat the crap out of her when the principal shows up. Sophia's got her right there with him, and mm -hmm. she's you know trying to help out. The principal takes so away Taylor... You know, Barbara's not so mad anymore. Sophia right. did stand up to Taylor in her own way, even if, but she, all she did was get the principal, which actually saves Barbara's life. At least a solid beating at this moment. A solid beating for sure. However, as the two of those girls are now after the bus ride home, they're walking on the beach together and talking. Sophia realizes that she also stood up to the bully, which means that Taylor's probably going to get her too. And oh, they're having no, a. A good conversation and you know they're talking about giants and Sophia's like well what's so cool about giants and this is great because Barbara's like well there's nothing cool about giants at least not technically but they are kind of cool to talk about you know and she right. breaks down the story of giants yeah so Barbara is actually not mad at uh, Sophia at this point she just wants to bring Sophia into her own world and Giants is the world of Barbara. She kills Giants. She said it early on in the beginning of the classroom, like when they're talking. She's not afraid of Giants at all. She kills Giants. And now Barbara describes the Giants to Sophia, goes through a bunch of stuff like uh, Giants are vermin. The Titans are the big bad ones. She tells the story of Ur, who is the creator of all of these Giants. And that uh, Kovaleski is actually made from a sliver of the jawbone of Ur, and therefore she can kill giants with this hammer. 
And there's a great little scene in here that I want to mention because it just really highlights the difference between Sophia and Barb, where Barb is describing that Ur is the son of the earth and the sky and that he was the misbegotten son. And Sophia's like, oh, misbegotten. That means they weren't married, right? And she, Barb is very annoyed, like, you're interrupting my story, but yes. And she goes, oh, okay, my brother's misbegotten. Just simple <laughs> things like that. And Barb doesn't even pick up on it. She just keeps railroading the story. Well, but, sure. She's a GM. That's what she does. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, later on, uh, when Barbara is actually showing off the hammer, which she never really shows the hammer. It's much later in the story when we see it for the very first time. This whole time we're talking about Kovaleski and the hammer. It's in a pouch. It's in that heart pouch that you described earlier. And it has the name Kovaleski uh, written over the top of the zipper of this pouch. And, um, while she's showing off this pouch named Kovaleski, the giant slayer, the first question that Sophia asks is, uh, so your Warhammer's Polish? Yeah. <laughs> and she says, no, 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 I named it that. Weapons of great renown have to have a name. So we get a little history lesson on why this is called Kovaleski. And, and Wes, I'm just going to hand it on over to you, man. Tell <laughs> us a little bit about Kovaleski. So let's just go ahead and say I love baseball. I've lived and breathed baseball probably since I was about seven years old. And I'm not as good on the history as a lot of other people that I know. But when I read about it, I get really excited. And Kovaleski was a name I did not recognize. He is from the early, early 1900s. He played for a little team called the Philadelphia Phillies. And in 1908, he pitched in a total of six games. Five of those games were complete games. Three of those basically happened in one week. And he took out the team that was going to go on to win the World Series, the Giants. And today, in baseball, most pitchers pitch on a five-game rotation. If they pitch on day one, they don't pitch again until day five. This dude pitched three games in seven days. And he smoked the Giants. So he gained the reputation of the Giant Killer. And this is the name that Barbara has latched on to for her hammer. And I love the implication of this. And Harry Kowaleski is a real guy. He really played in 1908 through 1910. Then he got kicked out of baseball because he threw out his arm his rookie season. Uh, had a really bad two seasons after that, got booted down to the minors where he got to play against Shoeless Joe Jackson in Birmingham, Alabama and New Orleans against the Pelicans. And So I'm reading all of this and it's just super exciting to me as a baseball fan. Uh, but Kovaleski actually took out Shoeless Joe Jackson uh, in one of the games that they played, went Man. 0 for 4. That's so cool. And it sounds like, I mean, even just the, I don't know anything about baseball, but when you and I talked about this a little bit, the fact that he pitched like that many games back to back is pretty unheard of because you said that they normally like pitch every fifth game or something. Yep. Yeah, they so, don't want to throw their arm out. No and, wonder he threw his arm out in the rookie season. Yeah. I mean, but he came back, he healed, and he was able to do really well. And the great thing is with Shoeless Joe is, uh, the story of I Kill Giants is very mythological based. It's about giants and all this mythology of how they have been raised and what they do to the world. And Shoeless Joe Jackson is part of the mythology of baseball. He just has this presence about him, even though he was banned in 1919 playing for the Chicago White Sox. He is still a very popular character that even showed up in a little movie called A Field of Dreams. Right. Now, Sorry. out of curiosity, did he play for the Giants, Shoeless Joe Jackson? 
No, no. Because that would have been really cool if he had been the giant that Harry Kovaleski took down. Oh, if only, if only, but no. But then uh, we find out Harry Kovaleski is tied into the mythology of this story as well as the mythology of baseball, and there's crossover, and I love it. And if you want to talk to me on Twitter about it, let's do it. Yeah, yeah. So if you want a baseball podcast, uh, just message Wes on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) I expect nothing from anybody. So that's all I know about this. Uh, Kovaleski, the fact that he was a real baseball player and not something that uh, Joe Kelly and Ken Nomura actually just made up, I thought it was pretty cool. Tied it it into the real world. It does. And if I remember correctly, this, this whole graphic novel takes place on Long Island. So they've tied it to the real world in more ways than one. It's, it's taking place in our world. Uh, and, and after all of this is explained, uh, Barb has to go home. She's leaving Taylor behind. And it's kind of interesting because at first it's, it seems like they're all getting along and Sophia makes this offhand comment like, wow, that's cool. It's weird that you know all this boy stuff, but it's cool. Oh yeah. And Barb just has this real, like, just plain face like oh my god are you serious that's and, it set her off man that oh just, yeah so she walks so she, off and sophia says yeah barb what did i do what's wrong and and she says something that, that again really really just showcases the difference between barb and sophia barb says you don't want to get close to me sophia people close to me die which is a very odd thing for a 12 year old to say to another 12 year old but you read it in all of the comic books or in novels like you just it's just a theme that runs through a lot of stuff that this girl would have read and she's Absolutely. just latched onto it. Absolutely. It, seen so, in movies. Like, don't get too close to me. People close to me die. It sounds like it's the epic, uh, the epic hero's quest, you know, like, or the redemption yeah. story. Yeah. And so yeah. I love that she is trying to live out her D and D books in real life almost. And I assume that that's probably where she got all of her information about the giants It's probably D and D books. No. Not all of it, but some of it maybe. Who knows? Oh, you're talking about the actual giants. I thought you were mentioning the baseball giants. Like, no, oh, her, no, no. Her family obviously loves baseball. Right. So she heads home, uh, and when we get when she gets back home, there's actually the first time we see her try to go up the stairs. She's got this real determined face. Uh, she makes it like two stairs up, and then one of the chairs squeaks. And then that same wailing, the Barbara, and she freaks out and runs downstairs. And it's a very anime look to yeah. Barbara's face in that scene. It is. It's very uh, like, so, uh, astonished. And so Barbara runs away. She heads downstairs rather than upstairs, where downstairs she has like this tent set up where she's obviously set up a base of operations with a sheet with this really cool drawings on it and... Uh, her sister Karen goes in to check on Barbara, and Barbara just doesn't really respond. If you need me, and then lights out, and we move on to chapter three, which is called the Armor. And this may actually be my favorite chapter in the book, just sure. because of the way that it it kind of lays itself out. I love it when books do this. So it starts out. Uh, the first panel is actually just like a broken coke can on the ground and there's this little pixie coming out of it and he runs over and he runs into barbara's leg and she's wearing armor there you hear me say she's wearing armor i mean she's wearing like full plate armor this is something right out of like middle ages dark souls D. i mean it looks like she's in a full plate armor and you're trying to figure out like okay what's what's going on with this um and we later find out that this armor exists around her to block out all of the bad things that have happened for the day. This armor is metaphorical. It's in her head. It is what her brain has constructed to protect her from all of the outside influences that have just been hammering her all day long. 
And it's been a pretty rough day for Barbara. Uh, she started off in therapy with Miss Molly, where she's Barbara's drawing this uh, picture on the thing while Miss Molly is trying to talk to her. Mm-hmm. And she basically is like, hey, you know what? I made a friend. Uh, and it, not only did I make a friend, but it's not an imaginary friend. Uh, so I think that I'm okay. You should probably just let me go. I'm normal. Can I go back to class now? And instead, Miss Molly asks about her family, asks about Karen and her brother, and apparently that is strike two. Yeah, strike two. In the moment that she asks about the brother, you know, like the family and everything, she's drawing with that pencil and it snaps in two, which that takes a lot of power to snap a pencil in two just on kind of command like that. Uh, crayon, but yeah. Is it a crayon? Definitely. Okay. I All think right. it's well, a crayon. You know, if it's a it's crayon, even it's written. A it's even written right there on the side of the pencil in the drawing. I, there's so much about this. Like I was talking about how it's not busy and it's very simple line drawings and I freaking love everything about it. But uh, there's little bits that you can pick up on your second, third, and fourth, fourth read-throughs of this book. Absolutely. And uh, it's kind of a weird scene too because after she breaks it, she takes the, the drawing that she's uh, been working on, crumples it up, and then eats it. <laughs> it's just such a ridiculous yeah. scene. And the writing on this, how I feel happy. Yeah, yeah, this is great. Uh, and so we transition into another class. And she's actually with Sophia and some of her other, I'm going to say friends loosely, because she doesn't seem to interact sure. with them the way that she does with Sophia. Classmates. Yeah, classmates. Uh, but they're all in phys ed now. And the teacher is going to want them to play baseball. and Which Bar- Barbara should be about happy about, right? That's what you would think. Absolutely. Uh, but she's not. In fact, she actually tells her, like, hey, if it's okay with you, I'm just going to take the F. Uh, and I love the way she describes the phys ed class. She tells Sophia, she's like, well, welcome to the chorus of the damned. I hope you left your soul in your locker. Uh, you know, so a very stereotypical fantasy nerd that doesn't want to play in sports or something, right? But we know she loves baseball, so what's up with that? Whenever the teacher brings it up, she just wants out of it, but Sophia doesn't get it. She's like, well, hey, what about Kovaleski and all that baseball stuff? And the teacher is immediately like, oh, Kovaleski, that's some serious hardcore baseball history. What do you know about Kovaleski? And this just sends Barb off, and she says some really awful things to this oh, teacher. Yeah. Just insults the teacher right to her face. Yeah. And doesn't even wait for the teacher to respond. Just like, the principal's office. I know where it is. Peace. Yep. We do see that Taylor and Miss Molly are off to the side, and they witness this whole thing. So Barb is leaving the principal's office when on her backpack that she left outside on like the little chairs uh, outside of the principal's office is a note from Sophia. And it just says, are we still friends? Yes or no? Love, Sophia. And there's like a little classic elementary school note. It's really cute. And Barb is like infatuated with this. I mean, the next few panels are really interesting because she's walking through the hallway and it's got her looking at the note and everything around her is like her imagination they're like it's happy yeah it's, it's really pure cool. joy stars that have got smiles uh little like snakes with big smiles and like little woodland critters running around i mean it's and just even, really neat and even her classmates walking through the hallway all seem to be having fun none of them seem unhappy is it it's it's a happy scene right uh, so then she's so happy that this note is a keeper so she reaches down to open up her little purse her pouch that holds kovaleski and she goes oh oh no oh no i, I wasn't really going to open it and then we look behind her 
and it's just utter devastation throughout oh, yeah. the hallway now. Like locker doors are ripped off. The previously smiling woodland creatures are all dead on the ground. The and you pipes can tell in the they're background dead. are busted. And you can tell they're dead because they have X's for eyes. Right. And she is freaking out. And she's crouched down. She's holding Kovaleski. She's holding the pocketbook. And she's saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I forgot myself. My holy quest, the sanctity of the seal. She's crouched on the ground. And all these people around her are pointing and staring. And this is when they use that text really well again, where you see, like, freak in really small letters. And you know that it was just loud enough for her to have heard it. So she runs off. And she uh, and now we're in the another session of therapy with Miss Molly, where when Miss Molly saw that uh, Barbara had this connection to baseball during the PE class, Miss Molly has brought a baseball into uh, the therapy session now. Yeah, and she decides she's going to play a game with Barbara, where she says, "Okay, hey, it's game time. I've got a baseball. I'm going to say a word. You say a word back." And at first, you know, it seems like she might be able to do something with this, but Barbara just is like, I think people play too many games. Let's let's just keep this honest. It's so Miss Molly like reaches out and tries to like hold her hand and make this physical connection with Barbara, uh, trying to help Barbara as best she can, and Barbara freaks out. Absolutely. And she freaks out. I mean, she's trying to resist the whole time, like, I've got to go to the bathroom. Let me go. Like, I've got to go do something else. And she Miss Molly's trying to play this game and she keeps just saying words expecting Barbara to and when she grabs her hand she's like you know we really got to talk about this what's going on at home maybe with Karen and Dave and then the words just scratched out I love this uh, love this as well as uh, part of what the art- artist and the writer have done which is a part of uh, whatever it is that Miss Molly is trying to ask her about which now we know it's not about Karen and it's not about her brother it's somebody else and you can't read what it is. It's uh, Barbara has blocked this out. This is like where the armor almost begins, where she's just trying to keep the world out. Exactly. And this is the moment when we see this gruesome face, this like Titan giant face in a panel. Same thing we saw in the shadows exactly. earlier. And Barbara has this like, you know, her eyes are dilated. They're little, little tiny eyes and her glasses look huge and her face is just astonished. And Miss Molly continues on with, I think we need to talk about and more text is scratched out and it continues this way. And then Barbara just stands up and slaps the shit out of her. She slapped a teacher, a school therapist, an adult figure, an authority figure, like how like a child doing that. Oh, would be in huge trouble. Right. And, and then she does it. We see the rest of her day where, and, and it's it's really impactful, this page, because it's got her like in class and kids are throwing paper at her and it just bounces off. Yeah. And then it's that giant face. And she's at lunch and she's not eating. And she's on the playground. She's not playing. She's on the bus ride. She's not interacting. She's standing on the side of the road. And then she's sitting on this bench, which is where the chapter started. We see that face one more time. And the next panel, she's wearing the armor. And she says, so yeah. That was my day as she's talking to these pixies, these brownies that are around her. And they're all actually playing baseball. And it's funny because one of them actually says, wow, remind me never to piss you off. <laughs> right. And while she's standing there talking to her, uh, her little pixies and just trying to get through the day, she is sucker punched 
by Taylor. Yes, and I love this scene too because she is literally sucker punched out of nowhere. She just gets hit. And when she gets hit, some of that armor comes off. And in the next panel, she's laying on the ground and you see the armor is dissolving. Like it looks like the pixies. It's drawn the same way where it's this like kind of white and gray lines. It's not the hard black lines that are used to describe the real world what's really happening. And her imagination is dissolving. Taylor has literally knocked her back into reality. And the next panel, it's even worse, where it's like she's just got some of her arm, uh, not arm gadgets, uh, arm bracers are there, and they're still on. But as the scene continues, all of this armor slowly fades away. And I just love the way that they show her coming back to reality, basically. And then Taylor... Uh, continues to beat the crap out of her, gets oh, her bad. onto the ground, and it's brutal. But then Barbara bites her, and she flips it on Taylor, and you see her like slamming Taylor's head into the concrete. I mean, this is a bad fight. Like, if you were to actually see two people duke it out like this in real life, your stomach would turn. You'd get, and yeah. then sudden, suddenly somebody reaches out and grabs Barbara by the shoulder. It's like, hey, stop! Don't do this. And Barbara just turns around and punches the person grabbing her shoulder. And unfortunately, that poor person is Sophia. I mean, you can only assume that Barbara probably thought it was one of Taylor's, you know, other friends. Oh, yeah. She's in the middle of the this heat, fight. In the heat of battle. Yeah. And just your eyes have gone red. You're seeing nothing but the battle in front of you. And oh man, Barbara loses it. She is, she feels terrible right. right now. Sophia runs off. Barbara is standing there just saying, please, please, I'm so sorry. And of course, Taylor is like so excited because you and you just see Taylor run off as well, but you know she got what she wanted. And then you and, see the note where, you know, Barbara's checkmarked, yes, we are still friends. And Barbara is looking up at the sky and you see that same drawing of the skull in the sky like made by the clouds. Mm-hmm. And it's like Barbara's descent into darkness. Yeah, and she says the signs, you're coming, aren't you? It's just bad. So then we're on to chapter four, The Ghoul. So Wes, tell us a little bit about chapter four. Well, the this ghoul. time, like every other chapter leading up to this point, we can really break it down, like what the different scenes are, like what's happening. Uh, And here, each scene is going to tell a different story. And in scene one, we get to see um, Karen, the Barbara's sister, uh, is actually called about uh, what happened with Miss Molly. And Karen has lost her mind. She is working really hard. She is making the best of the moment that she can. And and then it fuzzes over whenever she talks about uh, whatever is happening upstairs, which we still, as readers, don't know what that is yet. And we keep seeing the giant skull again, too, in this scene. Uh, and she's going on and on about how she can't do it without them because they won't grow up. So, and it's, this scene is so hard for me, man, because at the end of it, we see Barbara down at the beach and she's like surrounded by her traps. It looks like she's sitting at a fire. She's trying to, uh, you know, basically make steaks. And then instead of making steaks, she begins actually self-harming. Well, and the, 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 that part, the self-harm, which is really tough to read. I didn't pick up on it the first time I read this either. It was the second read-through where I realized what she is doing in this moment. Um, it, it's tough. Um, it is. Knowing people is. who have done this to themselves and why they do it. And this is definitely what is happening to Barbara at this point. She is... Uh, 
Oh, to put it dramatically, she is descending into madness, but she's getting really depressed over whatever it is that's going on. And every time something bad happens, you see this skull figure appear around her. And then when you shoot, when that happens, something bad, she does something bad as well. And this is part of that. Um, And the self-harm isn't, she's not just cutting herself to feel the pain and make sure that she's still alive. That's not what she's doing here. She is trying to set traps, but then her little pixie friends like, Hey, is that necessary? And Barbara's answer is just, I don't know. This is, it's graphic novels. Graphic novels tend to have a darker storyline, trying to tell a bigger story, and this is where that's happening. And it's tough to read. It is. And and we transition right into scene two with Sophia in the lunchroom, and this poor girl just looks so heartbroken. I mean, she's got this black eye where her, quite possibly the only friend she really has in this world right now, because she just moved, has hurt her. And Barbara's trying to lighten the mood and, and try to be friends, but... You can just tell that Sophia's kind of had it. She calls her crazy. Oh, man. Just to be called crazy by the one friend that you have made, even though you've lived here your entire life, everybody else thinks you're a freak. Everybody else thinks you're crazy. You have this one friend who seems to see past it. And now even that friend you've lost. And Taylor picks up on this. Taylor kind of gets that there's something going down between Sophia and Barbara. And we don't quite know what yet. She's she's awful. And Barbara gets called back in uh, to Miss Molly's office with a note, a note this time. So at least she's not being called right. out. Keeping on the deal. So we transition into this next scene where Barbara is talking to Miss Molly and she's pretty much just asked her point blank, like, why didn't you tell the principal about what I did? You know, everyone else for a mile around the house knows what happened, but the principal doesn't. And Miss Molly says, well, you get one. Everyone gets one. Do I have to explain any more? And this is a definite time where Barbara has self-reflection and she shows that she can think outside of herself and she just says, no, thanks. Yep. And it's, it's really great. I mean, she knows she was wrong. Uh, and so in this, she starts off with trying to talk to Barbara about something that is relevant to her. And she brings up giants. Like, okay, we're going to finally talk today. Tell me about giants. And Barb actually really engages in this. She, she loves talking about giants. I mean, this is what her world revolves around at this point. In her mind, she has been protecting yeah. this city from giants for a long time. And so in and, talking about the giants, Miss Molly just asks, are you afraid of giants? Right, and she's like, no, I'm not afraid of giants. I, I mean, it, why would I be afraid of giants? I have Kovaleski, and as long as I'm brave enough, as long as I'm strong enough, as long as I have the power to do it, with Kovaleski, I can stop death itself. And she really believes this. I mean, you can just tell that Barbara really is convinced that she can do anything with Kovaleski. And again, with that quote, I can stop death itself, they use that font trick again where it's whispered under her breath. And then you just see Miss Molly pick up on the fact that maybe Barbara still is embedded in the world, that maybe she can help her. Like this is her one hook into Barbara here, but she doesn't pound on that at all. Miss Molly just realizes that she needs to help Barbara and... Barbara's going down a bad path at this point. Oh, and at the end of the scene, uh, she says, when Kovaleski speaks, the world cries. Which is just, man, that's, I mean. And Miss Molly's face when she says it, like, it's, it's that adult trying to figure out just how serious is this child. Is this child really believing what they say? If they are, I am afraid. Or are they just playing? And if they're just playing, I'm really afraid. 
We transition into the scene between Sophia and Taylor, and they're in the bathroom. Sophia's checking out her black eye, and Taylor does that bully thing where she just gets under someone's skin and gets them to trust her just enough. And she's like, hey, you know, you hurt. You're still feeling kind of bad, because I am too. You know, it, she, she beat me up pretty bad. She says, uh, she's crazy, but she knows how to fight. And she asks her, like, hey, do you know any secrets about Barbara? Because if you do, uh, I'll tell you a secret about her mother. And this is the first time we are told, or at least informed a little bit, that, like, maybe there's something going on at home with the mom. I love how the writer does this, too, is they just allude to something happening at home this entire time. You don't know exactly what it is. Maybe it's mom, maybe it's dad, maybe it's just a grandmother or another sibling that they haven't mentioned at this point. You don't know exactly what it is, but they tell you, the reader, what the problem is at home through the bully, the enemy of Barbara. Right, which is a very unique way to tell this story. Uh, and I love this next scene, too, because as she's getting off the bus ride, we see what she calls the Harbingers. And they're these, like, mythical creatures that are real tall. They have these real pointy black hoods on. Uh, and their bodies look like they're all tattooed and shadowy. I mean, they're just neat looking. But she says that Harbingers are evil because they follow death. And they know when death is on the march. And that's why they're there. And it seems like she kind of insinuates that they shouldn't be there because her traps should be keeping them from being there, but they're entering the city. So she has to go and, and figure out what's going on. Like why are her traps not working? And she stumbled across a really awful scene of Sophia standing there in front of Taylor and the other bullies, destroying all of the traps, destroying the spikes that she set up last night. You know, she's ta they've taken down like that stinky bucket that I guess either keeps the trolls away or the giants away or whatever. Um, and it's it's awful. And so she decides that she's going to confront them. And she tells Taylor, like, I'm going to kill you if you don't leave now. And she starts to pull out Kovaleski. And Kovaleski is not what you expected. No, and she had mentioned earlier in the comic that Kovaleski was built from the bones of Ur. And when she pulls out Kovaleski, it's just this little tiny, like, pinball hammer. I think that's what you call it's it. It's a keychain with yeah. a small hammer keychain. They hand them out at tons of baseball games. You're like, come in to watch the baseball game. We'll give you a keychain. It's just this little tiny bat, and she has taken a nail and put it through the bat. Yeah, is that what it is? Is that just a nail? Okay. I'm pretty sure that's uh, that's what it looks like to me. Yeah, anyway, is that she's hammered right. a nail through it. And uh, written on her keychain is Home Run Hammer. So maybe it was originally designed to be like a hammer that they handed out, like a little memento or whatever mm -hmm. that they hand mm -hmm. out at baseball games all the time. And when she pulls it out, she is so shocked that she doesn't even have a second to like realize that Taylor's about to just knock her into Timbuktu. So Taylor and all of her friends start absolutely destroying her. I mean, they're kicking her in the face. They've got her on the ground. And then she wakes up in her room. Uh, and she is not how, okay with this. How bad is a fight when you get knocked out? Man, I, well, you know, it's interesting. In comic book world, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal because it seems to happen a lot. But yeah, in but real life, one, if you get knocked out, you should go to the hospital. This <laughs> one's based in a real world. Like, I know. They live on Long Island. They And she has a Home Depot home run bat that she thinks is a big hammer. Uh, yeah. Let's just talk about that for a second. Why, at this point, is the hammer not real? What do you mean? Like, like why is it not what she expects? 
Yes. Like, wh- or I guess this, why is it not real? But why is the hammer real here where it's just a keychain? Why does she see the keychain hammer when she was expecting a great war hammer of Kovaleski? Well, I think the whole thing is because she opened Kovaleski before its time. I mean, whenever she opened it to put the note in it from Sophia earlier on in the, the comic in the last chapter, she makes the mention of like, oh, no, it's not time yet. I'm not supposed to be opening this. So you, you're supposed to only use Kovaleski for important matters. And that wasn't what Kovaleski deemed important. So she believes that Kovaleski has lost its power because she's done something wrong. Right. When in, I feel like in conjunction with that, uh, that is definitely what is happening in Barbara's mind at this point. But Kovaleski is a fantasy weapon built to fight a fantasy creature, the Titan, the giant. But now that she has taken out the hammer to fight someone who is in the real world, another human Kovaleski's not there, and she sees it for what it actually is, which is just a keychain. Uh, but definitely, she wakes up inside of her bedroom, and I think we've established that her bedroom is upstairs. I don't know why I get this feeling from watching it, but she was living in the basement downstairs, and now she is in her actual bedroom upstairs, and Sophia has come to visit her. Right, and Sophia's standing in the hallway with like a glass of water, uh, and she's just crying, and she has this real shocked face, and I, you feel so bad for Sophia, because in all of these panels, the artist has drawn her with a black eye, even when she is drawn from far away, you can still see the black circle around mm-hmm. that eye, uh, but yet here she is trying to take care of her friend, and yet she's just staring into this room, and yeah. Barbara starts whispering to her like, oh no, what are you doing? Why did you bring me up here? You know, Don't let it see you. Sophia and she drops has, the glass and... And she's got to be staring in her mother's room at this point, right? Or Barbara's mother's room. Right, right. And she drops that glass, it breaks. Barbara tiptoes over to it and she's saying to herself, like, just go, just go, we got to get through this. And she's sho- like, you know, kind of shoving her hands over her face to try to not see into the room. And we see that like awful picture of this woman that's like tied to a bed. It almost looks like a torture device with this creature behind her. And there's that that wailing, the Barbara. So yeah, Barbara looks into her mother's room and we see it from Barbara's point of view of how she views her mother, which is this tortured human on the rack, which is a medieval device designed to stretch someone out. And so basically the idea is they're going to rip the arms off apart from the, the legs. That's what the device is designed to do. And there's this awful creature back behind uh, her mom, which her mom has got to be in bed, first of all, right? Yeah, for sure. You I would mean, think. You would think so. Yeah, being sick, whatever it is that's wrong with her, she's probably laying in bed, but she's upright on this rack, and behind her is this terrible creature that I would call from the D&D world a gibbering mouther. It has like a bunch of eyes and mouths, just, mm. and it's just this blob of flesh. It, it's gross looking. Uh, it's super gross. And this actually, now that I'm looking at the picture right now and we're talking about it, it it makes me think of what it's supposed to represent, but we'll bring that up later whenever we discuss it. Uh, And this is the end of this chapter. Uh, She sees this, she freaks out, she slams the door. I mean, it's It's, just such a powerful image of how Barbara views her mother. It's sad. It's really sad. And, And this is how her whole world appears to her. I mean, the the author and the artist do a really good job of conveying that she really does seem to live in almost a different plane than the rest of everybody else. Mm -hmm. So we move on to chapter five, 
that is titled The Sacrifice. Yeah, and Barbara appears to be missing in this first bit of this chapter. I mean, it's like you see these panels of the Sophia kind of going around school looking for her, classes taking place, you see a missing chair, or not a missing chair, you see a missing person, an empty chair. Uh, Taylor is picking on other kids, uh, and they're, they're talking about Barbara. They're like, you know, what's going on? She's not around here. So she's missing. So Sophia goes and grabs Miss Molly from the office, and they both go to Barbara's house to try and find out what's wrong, what's happening. We, they haven't seen Barbara. And Karen answers the door and just says, I've put her on the bus every day. What do you mean she's missing? And it kind of starts with, like, I put her on the bus. I make her breakfast. Well, sometimes I leave out cereal. Well, you know, I think Dave ate, like, old chicken last night. You know, I mean, yeah. you can tell that there's this moment of, like, oh, crap, I'm really not doing a great job here. And Miss Molly's trying to help out and be like, oh, no, you're doing the best you can. And as this is happening, Sophia goes down into Barbara's room, like, downstairs in this basement, where typically you would see in Barb's den that, that you know, kind of home base right like she's got this tarp up and everything but everything is just ruined like all of the bats are shattered books are torn apart her her little uh tent has been ripped in two like it's just it's as much devastation as what you saw when barbara almost opened up her bag of kovaleski in the school hallway from before except this is real because sophia is seeing it Right, and the whole time you can hear Miss Molly and Karen in the background talking about the fights that have been happening between her and Taylor. And Sophia finds this picture frame of Barb sitting with a woman. It looks like she may be at a baseball game because she's holding that keychain. Oh, there it is. Yeah, Yeah, it's the bat. So it was definitely a keychain that was made into a hammer. It's probably the Home Depot home run hammer. Right, and this woman has like a giant's face taped over her actual face. Oh. That's and th- in this it, panel, it's really, really heartbreaking because you can hear Miss Molly saying, I think it's time for everyone ha- to have a frank discussion. And Sophia finds a receipt for ye old GameStop. Uh, and, and this is when Sophia's like, okay, well, I know where she's at. So we yep. see Sophia run off and she arrives at ye old game shop. And that's uh, so Sophia walks in and asks for Barbara Thorson. And nobody knows who Barbara Thorson is. So Sophia just takes a wild shot and says, well, how about Kovaleski? Is Kovaleski here? And everybody's face goes like pale white. And they're just utterly afraid of like, no, no, no. You you don't play D&D like she does, do you? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody is just deathly afraid of Kovaleski. Which is so great. I mean, you know, it's they just know that there's like she's that hardcore serious gamer and yep. in the back Sophia finds Barbara. She's at the gaming table and she looks like she's trying to go through some like spells or something. She's reading off Curse of yeah. Undoing, Creeping Hand of Falstaff and Sophia confronts her, you know, like, hey, we're, we're looking for you. And Barb just kind of loses her mind. She gets so mad. You know, she says that she's friends with Taylor now and yeah, she, she ends up flipping the table. Barbara just loses her mind here, especially with that table flip. That was crazy. Right. And she's screaming the whole time about Kovaleski being broken or cursed or something. And she's blaming Sophia. She says it's because of you and that girl. Oh, man. And, of course, the game shop owner. There's a little bit of a... A jab here at game shop owners with uh, him coming into the back room to fix the table, and he just says, "This is why girls should play D and D." Very old school train of thought. Yeah, yeah just a uh, jerk. 
Yeah, right. And, and, and they even draw this store to be like that real typical old school gaming shop where it's like very clearly everyone in here is a dude. And and you can smell the B.O. Right. I'm so glad things are not like this anymore, you know? If only that was true. Well, it's, hopefully it's getting better. Yeah, so then we get to see Barbara running down an alleyway here, and she sees the Harbingers, and then she finds a bunch of dead pixies. Oh, it's so sad, because she kneels down, and she's on her knees, and she's looking at them, and she just says, I'm sorry, I can't stop it, I can't, I can't. And you find, uh, like, Taylor's dragging Sophia away somewhere? Well, I think Sophia is just walking no, away, okay. and she sees That's Taylor, and she, Taylor has got like a bat is. or something. You you can't really tell what it is because it's wrapped it's up. Wrapped but she, up, yeah. right? Taylor is saying like, "All right, well, if she's too scared to come to school, then we're going to bring it home." Like, I mean, yeah. Taylor is just she's evil, man. She is yeah. the she's really truly is the villain of this. I mean, they it's could awful. not have made her worse. No. Uh, and we see this weird thing where it transitions into Barbara like scooping up dead animals off of the road. Which is just very odd in of itself. So I just put uh, put some things together. The name of the chapter is The Sacrifice. And then she's looking through the D&D book for what you called spells. So just something I can use. So apparently she has found a spell from her D&D book that will allow her to cast something to be helpful. Yeah, and it, she's she is confronted by Miss Molly, which it's kind of just pure luck that Miss Molly found her, I suppose. But when she stumbles across her, she like pushes all the uh, dead bodies behind her. And Miss Molly's like, what are you doing? And, and she shows her like all of these dead animals that she's collected. And she says, well, I found the spell, but it needed a sacrifice and that's black magic. And I don't believe in black magic. So I was hoping that I could just use already dead things. And Miss Molly is just like, what the fuck? I mean, you can, I can't even imagine being in this position, right? Like this Psychologist yeah. stumbles across this poor girl that's clearly having some trouble with coping with whatever's happening at home, and she's collecting dead animals now. It's like, uh, how can this get any worse? And she just decides to lay it all out, and she grabs Sophie, and she grabs Barbara, and rain starts pouring, and you almost have to wonder if it's actually raining at first, or if Barbara's just crying, because Miss Molly finally says, look, your mother's dying. The, you... You can't walk away from this. You can't ignore this. Your mother has cancer. And, and this is the first time where it's spelled out for both the reader and Barbara. And Barbara doesn't scratch it out. She doesn't put on her uh, metaphorical armor and block any of this out. She hears it. Right. And it's really, really awful because in this scene, Miss Molly, had, up to this point, has been drawn as like really. Uh, calm talking to her, you know, like just trying to have a conversation. But in this panel, she looks mean. And she says, you cannot kill this giant. And it really hits at home. And this is where I want to reference back to that scene of the mother with that breather that you called it in the background. It almost looks like a tumor now that I'm thinking about it, where it's just mm -hmm. like grown upon itself, like what yeah. cancer is. And I had not, I hadn't, hadn't seen it that way until just now. I mean, it's amazing how the more I read this book, the more little things we find. That's actually a really good point. The gibbering mouth, there is actually cancer growing behind the mother, overlooking yeah. her, and it's just evil. Yeah. And at this point, after Miss Molly screams at her that you cannot kill this giant, 
Barbara pushes her down. So she has now slapped Miss Molly, and now she has pushed Miss Molly to the ground. Right. And as Barbara is running away from her problems, running away from her fears, it's raining, and there's this titan face, this giant face in the clouds, and she's screaming, I hate you! And she oh, sees... Do you, you're talking about that Titan face in that same panel. Do you see mm-hmm. that the the armor gloves flying behind her? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I never, I but I don't think those are armor gloves. I think those are gloves she was wearing to not have to touch the dead animals. Because she's wearing, like, oh, they look like plastic gloves. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. So she's, right. she's flinging those off, and she's running, and she's screaming, I hate you. And she hears someone scream, stop it. And she sees Taylor and her gang messing up more of her traps, and Sophia is trying to stop her. That's just terrible. And you find out that bundled item from earlier that Taylor was carrying is an actual axe. Yeah. She has brought a sharp object as a weapon, right? chopping down the stake that uh, Barbara has put up. And she and Taylor threatens to kill Barbara here. This and is getting very, very, very real. It is. And you don't know what happened to Sophia, but Sophia's leg is injured. So you can almost assume that she's already whacked Sophia with this axe because when, when Barbara shows up, she, she helps Sophia up off the ground and she's like, you know, are you okay? Can you run? Sophia says no. And I love this because Barbara just goes, then we don't run. You know, so it's dramatic. great. So dramatic. <laughs> Thunder near me die. And then we yeah. don't run. Man, it's so it, just the... They are friends, you know, and this is the moment that you can tell that they're going to be friends. And the way that that they draw Taylor, oh man, she looks evil. Bridge, bridge troll right here. The sharp teeth. She's got this big jacket on and the axe. I mean, something right out of D&D, which is probably how Barb views her. It almost makes me wonder if Taylor doesn't look anything like this. If this is just how, right, Barb sees her. I love Uh, that. It's great. And then suddenly there's this loud booming noise that happens and maybe it's thunder. It's raining. Everybody's wearing raincoats. So you think maybe it was a lightning and thunder thing here. And then everybody looks up and there's more to it than just thunder. Right. Yeah. Because at first Taylor is like, oh, it's just thunder. It's just thunder. And then she looks again and she says, oh, what is that? And they're all looking and there's this massive giant. I mean, the, the artwork for this is incredible, really. It may be my favorite page in the entire comic just because this titan is awesome and that's when barbara says it's not a giant it's a titan and it's unstoppable and that's the end of the chapter so the end of chapter five you have all three of the kids looking up at this titan at the end they all apparently see it right because Sophia even says, it's a giant. And Barbara has to respond with, no, it's a titan. And even Taylor has acknowledged that there is something there. The interesting thing about these panels, to me at least, is that Taylor's friends have completely abandoned them. They're just gone. They're nowhere to be seen, yeah. whereas like a page before, they were in the background. So they noped out of there real quick. Right. Uh, we'll, and remember what we're talking about here with all three of them looking up at the titan. We're going to discuss this at the end of the book. So we'll move on to chapter six, which is basically going to be real easy to cover because it's one big fight scene. Oh, it's so cool. I mean, it is really, as far as comic book fight scenes go, it's pretty epic. It's in the top 10 for me. Taylor and Sophia have run away. Uh, The Titan picks them up into its hand Mm -hmm. and uh, Barbara has decided to pull out Kovaleski again. And when she does, Kovaleski has been healed and she pulls out the coolest hammer I've ever seen. Like 
I want this in a D&D campaign so bad. And it's so funny looking, too, because it's on this, like, thin, spindly rod, and the, but you got this, like, massive bell-shaped hammer on the end. With all these uh, Viking symbols written onto it. And it's so funny because the Titan is, like, taking Sophia and Taylor and putting it up to his mouth, and he just says, Snack. And Barbara <laughs> says, put them down. And that's where we yeah. see the scene with this hammer. And she also follows up with, you will not take them. You will not take her. You will not take my mother. So Barbara is convinced that this Titan is here for her mother. And that is very much so the the through line for this entire chapter is just them fighting and her screaming about like, you know, sh- I'm, you're not going to be able to take my mother from me. And uh, she lands a couple of big blows on this Titan, allowing Sophia and Taylor to get away. And she says, I beat you. You know, like I took you down. I fought hard. My mother's going to live. And the giant, the Titan is, is accepting that. Like, yes, you fought hard, little warrior. And it's awful because he follows it up with, uh, I did not come for her. I came for you. And then she just gets that big, wide-eyed look, and the realization has finally hit her about what this Titan is here for. And she's just like, but I beat you. Yeah. Uh, And it's, man, it's just such... This chapter is just so epic. Okay. So one thing we have not talked about up until this point is the fact that Barbara wears bunny ears throughout this entire story Mm -hmm. it's just become such a part of her character i forgot to mention it at the very beginning but she always wears these bunny ears and they are extremely expressive when she is happy or in an argument they can like stand upright or like one ear can be cocked over when she's feeling a little meek here both ears are down around her shoulders Mm -hmm. when she is having this final conversation with a titan and she says there isn't anything i could have done was there and the Titan just says, I am sorry. And we get this one last like attempt at a hit, and this massive beam of lightning goes right through this yeah. Titan's jaw. I mean, it's like epic. It is classic anime art here yeah. with the reaction from Karen inside of a house, right. Miss Molly's there, Sophia. Sophia screaming no, and this Barbara has gone through the skull of this Titan. And it's so crazy that this this lightning hit was so loud that like even people in the house heard it forever away. Miss Molly heard it. I mean, it's affecting everybody. Sophia goes into the ocean hoping to find Barbara, but the Titan's gone. Barbara's gone. All that's left is devastation, which is exactly what Barbara had said in the beginning. All giants and Titans bring are devastation and hate. And that brings us to chapter seven, the end. Chapter seven is interesting because it starts off with Sophia on the beach and she finds Kovaleski. So she's found the little pocketbook uh, and, and we see this picture of the beachfront and everything's destroyed. The bridge they were next to has been cut in half almost. It looks like something just took a massive like sledgehammer and took it down in two. And there's this big gash through like part of the town. It looks like a house or two were just ripped apart. I mean, it is awful looking. Uh, and, and we get a kind of a talk over from some local news agency or news report, probably on a radio, about how climatologists have been stunned at the suddenness and severity of the nor'easter that ripped through Long Island yesterday afternoon. There, that is the first time we finally realize where this story is taking place. It's on Long Island, and 
This is where I want to talk about that Titan and that image of the three children on the beach staring up at something and all three of them see it and everybody is afraid for Barbara telling her to run. What do you think is actually there that all three of them see? So in my opinion, I think the Titan is real, at least in the book. I mean, the hurt, the newscaster says that everybody, the meteorologists were shocked by this random nor'easter that came through unexpectedly. There were no signs for it. But of course the meteorologists would say that. They don't want to admit Titans are real. They don't want to admit giants are real. I mean, this, so is, this a, is a it's a cover-up. Cover up. Absolutely, it's a cover-up. And, and we know the truth. And I love this scene, too, because they, they've got, like, the home and the cops out front, Karen inside making coffee for everybody. And they're listening probably to the news reports. That's how we're hearing it. We're hearing it through those characters. Mm -hmm. So they don't know giants are real. They don't think titans are real. They just think that Barbara has been lost because the news report mentions that no one was really harmed. No one was really hurt except for one missing little girl. And then for you, you're the big uh, conspiracy theorist. So, of course, you would think that's it's all a big cover-up. Well, I mean, the three... I think it was actually just a nor'easter, which is basically either a hurricane or a tornado, kind of depending on how you look at it. They saw a tornado on the top of the water, and it ripped through, and it tore the bridge apart, and it ripped up those houses, and it caused great devastation. But Barbara saw a titan. Well, so Barbara, did Sophia and Taylor, though. No, though, they saw a tornado. Well, but specifically, Sophia says it's a giant. It, she doesn't say it's giant. Like, if it was a tornado, she could say it's giant, it's huge. But no, it's it, it's a giant. <laughs> yeah. Sophia's playing along a little bit. Oh, but even Taylor sees it, because Taylor freaks out, too. And Taylor and yeah. Sophia are both picked up. So unless hey. that nor'easter just threw them up 100 miles mm -hmm. in the air for a minute. I think that's just what Barbara saw. Well, Maybe. But yeah. the whole family's there, and they are waiting on Barbara to show up. And there's actually a, a bit here where, like, they're making coffee, and Miss Molly's in the basement. Like, they're really trying to make this emotional. They hear the knock-knock at the door, and they all look around, like, oh, is it Barbara? But no, it's Sophia. No, it's She's Sophia. got a bunch of bagels. And it's this is another moment, though, where I truly believe that the giants, the pixies, the fairies, all of it's real because as Sophia is trying to console the family, she sees a small pixie in the window seal. And no. Oh, no, I think she does. No. She sees this pixie and her eyes light up and all of a sudden, the you hear this big like thud and the door opens up, they all rush and there's Barbara standing there, kind of rough looking but with a big smile on her face and Kovaleski in the background, like this huge mm -hmm. hammer. And Barbara just says, do I smell bagels? Because I'm starving. And you say that uh, Sophia is looking out the window and sees the pixie. I don't think she saw the pixie. So like you... The pixie is only there because Barbara gets close, and therefore she sees the pixie. But Sophia actually sees Barbara walking up, and that is why she is wide-eyed and excited. Maybe. But then in the next scene, there is the small little hammer keychain because we, we see Kovaleski, the hammer, the one she fought the Titan with, and then in the next panel, it's just shrunk down back into that little keychain, but it leaves behind this massive damage. Like, it, like she just dropped the hammer on the front porch, and it's so heavy, it broke it. Yeah, probably a rock smashed in their porch during the nor'easter and uh, damaged the porch, and she just happened to drop the hammer in the correct place. You just don't want to believe I just like how it's uh, ambiguous. Like it you is. could argue either way. You and really could. 
Uh, I just love it. And then Sophia goes to pick up Kovaleski, and it's just this little tiny keychain again. And Sophia and Barbara make up, and they're friends. Sophia asks Barb, she says, is it over? Barb says, no, can you stay for a little bit? And we get this beautiful scene of Barbara with the support of her friend trying to walk up these stairs. And she's having this flashback to the fight with the Titan. And we see this Titan falling into the ocean and he's sinking. And it's what he said over and over. Like, I did not come for her. I came for you, child. And he delivers the most important line of the entire book. Um, Would you like to read it, Wes? Or would you like me to? No, go for it. I don't want to cry. He says, all things that live die. This is why you must find joy in the living, while the time is yours, and not fear the end. To deny this is to deny life. To fear this is to fear life. But to embrace this, can you embrace this? And then he tells her, you are stronger than you think. That is definitely the message of this entire book, is all based off of this right here. Finding joy in the living, and uh, being stronger than you think you are, and finding strength within yourself and to enjoy life for when you have it. Right. And it shows her walking up the stairs and that shadow is still in the background and the hissing noises. But she hears over and over, I came for you. And you realize that he didn't come for her to get her. He came there to support her. And I don't know that I even caught that the first or second time I read Mm -hmm. it. I didn't really realize it until you had been, you had a note that said something along the lines of that. And I was like, damn, it just gets deeper and deeper. And, you know, (laughs) she walks in and she sees her mom in her room. I didn't come for you. I came for you. Yeah. So she walks up those stairs and she sees her mom and it's the true version of her mom. She's in her bed and she's got like what looks like a dialysis machine or something off to the right. Or maybe it's just an IV bag. You're not too sure. I mean, it's a monitoring station to keep track of her vitals. And it is a lot happier and prettier than really what I expected it to be. She has this beautiful bay window behind her bed Mm -hmm. that lets in lots of natural light. It's a very light and airy scene that's got lots of white in it rather than dark shadows that you've seen in a lot of other scenes inside this house. Right, right. And, uh, you know, she kind of reconnects with her mom. She lays there with her. And and we're going to skip over yeah. a lot of this because this is too much. Like it watching is. the small child climb into bed with her mom. Like I'm tearing up again. Just, right. Just like scrolling through this book. I'm like, all right, I'm going to scroll faster. And <laughs> we're in the next scene next, where next, next, she's next. back at school. Right. So summer's ended. It is now starting to become fall time. And uh, it's just like things are kind of back to normal, it feels like you know the titan's been slayed and they're in class and some one of the teachers is like well what did you guys do over the summer oh no one wants to say anything well i'll just pick a volunteer how about barbara thorson and clearly this teacher has no idea who barbara thorson is because i don't think any of the other teachers would ever have called on her randomly for anything no but we get this new picture of barbara i mean she is actively wanting to talk about it uh sort of she says you might want to pick somebody else because my summer wasn't interesting and she's now holding a book that says queen bees and wannabes uh very different from her dungeons and masters book 
Right. And her head has her headset has changed as well. She has now a hoodie on with like some sort of bee antenna instead of the large bunny ears. So something about her has changed, not only her attitude, but also her dress and mm-hmm. her wardrobe. Her demeanor is entirely different. And she says, uh, I ate, I slept, I played, hung out with my mom. And Sophia's like, oh, no, She's no, that's normal. not it. She killed a titan with her bare hands. So yet again... <laughs> Sophia is absolutely backing up that she killed a Titan, which makes me totally believe the Titans are real. (laughs) Sophia is definitely playing along with Barbara's imagination at this point. She is bought into the game, and it's uh, a great friendship when you can let that happen. It reminds me of uh, Abed and Troy from Community, where they both can see the same thing, even though it's not real. Right. And I love the teacher's response, because she just goes, super. That's just That's super. super. <laughs> and let's call on somebody else. Did you play baseball? Let's get to something a little like less gianty. Right. And you know the interesting thing about this chapter that I have found is throughout the book, her fantasy world is drawn around her. However, in this chapter it's not. It's nowhere to be seen. It's, there are not no there's no fantasy anything around her. It's just her and Sophia walking through class. Nope. Beforehand it would have been her and Sophia walking through the hallways with snakes and monsters and all kinds of stuff. Cute little um, woodland creatures. Right, right. Uh, but that is not at all the way that this is at. So, yeah. And we also get a really nice scene. It's a little bit of a wrap-up on the Taylor storyline, on what's happening with Taylor now. And Taylor is trying to intimidate a person that has a crutch and uh, a hurt leg of some sort. Right, and she's like, come on, don't make me hit you on the first day of... and." She says, no, I said no, Taylor. And then all of the other girls are there. Sophia and Barbara are standing right behind her. And Taylor is kind of freaking out. This little girl with a crutch hits Taylor with a crutch. It's great. (laughs) Not this year, Taylor. Just we have new rules now. So Sophia and Barbara are sitting in art class. It looks like they're kind of making something. And uh, it's great because Sophia's like, is that a dragon? And and Barbara's like, mind your own business. And Sophia's trying to guess. And then Barbara's called. And it's Miss Molly and another teacher. Uh, and Miss Molly says, hey, can you please come with me? And she says, it's time. You know, the, the doctor says it's soon. Karen's coming to get you. And I like what they do here because Barbara says, you know, will you come with me, please? And she says, you know, she likes you a lot. You can be there. It's okay. Like, we, I want you to be there. And Miss Molly says, I don't think that's appropriate. So it's truly, I know, like, I'm having a hard time even saying this right now, but <laughs> it's it's her trying to say, like, hey, look, you got to do this. It's it's you. You know, I can't be there for everything. And, and really, it's just these two pages right here are all that are dedicated to the passing of the mother. It mm-hmm. is that simple for Barbara. She has come to terms with it, she has accepted it, and now she has to move past it. Right. She says, don't be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. We're just saying goodbye. And then uh, we see a shot of the graveyard, and it's the funeral for her mother. And we actually get to see Barbara take the Kovaleski pouch off of her shoulder and put it on the casket of her mother. Yeah. And you can assume that the hammer is probably in there. I would hope so. I would imagine so. Although she did leave it on the porch for Sophia to pick up. That's so true. It's the pouch that is important here. Right, right. So we uh, get kind of a wake scene. We hear in the background the dad never showed up to the funeral. So it's pretty apparent at this point hey, the dad was never so that's what That's what happened to him. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he's one of those dads. 
Um, Mom got sick and dad peaced out. Or he may not even have been there beforehand. Who knows? He's clearly yeah. worthless. So we get this great scene of Barbara up and upstairs. She seems to be pretty happy. Uh, Miss Molly asks her how she's doing, and she says, well, three relatives have called me Barbie, and it would be rude to puke on them. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, like clearly she's holding it up. She's keeping it together. Yeah. And, and Barb says, you know, I'm sad. I'm really sad. But we knew it was coming. And the scene ends. And Barbara is later on that night turning off all the lights, trying to go to bed. And she goes into her mom's old room. And she's sitting on the bed. She's looking out the window. And she just sees that Titan, that goofy Titan standing out in the ocean. And she says, we're all right. I'm all right. Goofy. Thank you. Well, at this point, he's goofy. Like, he's not intimidating anymore. He just looks like her big Titan buddy that came to say goodbye. You know, like, he doesn't have that menacing feel to him anymore because you know he's not there to hurt anybody. So every... Not there for her. Exactly. Like, every single bit of that menacing feeling he had in the earlier chapters is gone to me. Um, and, and this is the end. This is exactly where it ends. The Titan is walking away. Barbara is smiling. And she covers up and she says, we're going to be all right. We're stronger than we think. And we get to see those little transparent pixies reappear. So she is still, she still has access to her fantasy world, but she is stronger than she thinks. Mm -hmm. And she can deal with the life around her. And that is the end of I Kill Giants. Scale of one to 10. How do you rate this story? Oh, man. Uh, I'm going to give it a solid eight and a half, man. Oh man, it's all the way to a ten for me. Is man. it really? See, if in you, my mind, if you there's... can make me cry even going over it. Like I'm tearing <sighs> yeah. up and kind of choking up over some of the stuff. I wasn't joking when I said I had to scroll over those images really, really fast. Yeah, me too. Or I wouldn't be able to do a podcast and actually speak. Uh, if you can do that, if you can make me feel and get in touch with characters the way that these two did, absolutely a ten. I and I loved it. Like the story itself, it's uh. It's a theme that everybody will have to deal with at some point in their life. The loss of a loved one or a friend or a favorite animal even. It's a story that is uh, common to the human condition all the way through. Everybody is going to have to deal with this. And they approached it from a very interesting aspect of how this 11 or 12-year-old girl deals with this loss. Yeah, they do a good job of it. Uh, it's it's an amazing life lesson in a simple 200-page book. And so they decided to make a book, a movie out of it. Right. Uh, and I think at this point, we have established that as far as the book is concerned, I think that the Giants, the Pixies, all of it, all of it's real. Ah. It's how she deals with it. None of it's real at all. Now, I will say, in comparison to the movie, the movie makes it seem like none of it's real at all because no yeah. one else sees any of the giants. No one else interacts with any of the fantasy creatures. It is always Barbara. There doesn't, and even when Barbara interacts with them, you can tell that it's almost like in a way to help her see more clearly. It's her way of processing what's happening. I felt like the book was way more in between. You could argue either way. The movie, not so mm -hmm. much. Definitely. It was definitely a uh, uh, from the viewpoint of how the director interpreted the story, for sure. For sure. So, the movie came out in 2017. It uh, starred Madison Wolf as Barbara, Sidney Wade as Sophia, Imogene, Imogene Poots as Karen, Zoe Saldana as Sophia, which if you recognize that name, uh, Zoe Saldana is from Westworld. 
uh, Rory Jackson as Taylor. It was all directed by Anders Walter, and it had several producers, as most movies do. Uh, but the big one that we all, well, didn't recognize, but we talked about it at the beginning of this episode, is Chris Columbus, who brought you Harry Potter, Home Alone, Mrs. Doubtfire. Honestly, the list from Chris Columbus is too long to even begin to name. Uh, so he has his hands in lots of uh, what you could call nerd culture. For sure. So out of curiosity, with the book script versus the movie script, let's rate that. One out of ten, let's say one, they changed everything. Ten, they stuck to their guns 100%. Where do you rate this one? A five. Yeah, I was going to give it like a six. Like, it was close to keeping with the book. Uh, I understand that it's two separate mediums, and you don't necessarily want to tell the exact same story. That story was told in the graphic novel. So you want to tell a slightly different story so it's similar but uh, different, so you can enjoy both on their own terms. You can, but, but this book was definitely just a five. so well done. I don't see any need to deviate from it. And it didn't feel like the changes they made in the movie made sense. Like the so for instance, there's the scene where Sophia gets hit by uh, Barbara during the middle of a scuffle with Taylor. In the movie, she just gets hit after a long day. Like Sophia's like Barbara is walking down the road. She's in that trans kind of state where she doesn't know what's going on. She's had that that interaction with Miss Molly about the mother the first time. And Sophia just walks up, puts her hand on her shoulder, and Barbara turns around and knocks the crap out of her. There's no fight yeah. happening. There's also this whole plot where she has to fight a wood giant which was not even in the the book at all, but wood giants weren't even in the book at all. So just a lot of unnecessary stuff that didn't contribute to the overall story. It didn't feel as necessary, I suppose. And in thinking about it, after we had this discussion, we were going over our notes. uh, I had a feeling the wood giant was added in to add more action. Yeah. To expand the movie without having to do too many scenes between children. I guess I could see that. I mean, overall, I think the movie is a great watch. If you don't want to read a book and you just want to sit down for an hour and a half and watch it, sure. it's great. But once you read the book, it just changes everything. Um, yeah. I will say that I liked the way that she interacted with the Harbingers more in the movie because the Harbingers show up and actually tell her certain things like, oh, you can't do this. You know, like you need to prove yourself. Whereas in the book, the Harbingers are just in the background. But that was kind of a neat addition. I also liked how in the movie they she has this this journal of all of the traps that she set and they're not just on the beachfront they're all around town they're in the school there's a moment where she's like walking through the school counting all of the different traps to make sure they're still there like she's got wards put in place and I I thought that was kind of neat but outside of that I really I felt like the book was just such a better medium for the story sure so did they combine or separate any characters for the movie I don't think so I don't think that there was really anyone left out I feel like everybody was there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, What do you think about the actors? Did you like the people that they chose for these characters? For the most part, yes. I liked uh, Madison Wolf as Barbara. Mm -hmm. She had that same round face and kind of snarky attitude, but also still a little bit sweet. Yeah, she nailed Uh, the attitude. Sophia, Sydney Wolf as Sophia was terrific. She was just lovely. I think she had an English accent. She did. From the UK. Um, so she was great. Uh, Karen was fine. She's a minor character that only shows up a little bit. Uh, Zoe Saldana as, uh, as Miss Molly was terrific. I don't like what they did with Miss Molly's character in the movie. Yeah. Uh, they made her. 
And like, I understand that they kind of had to give her the split between home and family or taking care of a work problem in, um, in Barbara. But I don't know. It was just something very odd about uh, Barbara showing up at Miss Molly's house in the pouring rain and having to make Miss Molly choose between spending time with her child or spending time with Barbara. They don't get that complicated with a story in the book. Yeah, I mean, even in the book, the last bit there, Miss Molly pretty much says, like, no, you need to go handle your family matters on your own. Like, I'll be there for the funeral, I'll be there for the wake, but, like, this is an outside-of-the-school kind of deal. Mm-hmm. In the movie, they invested too much time in a character that didn't matter outside of school. They, um, and I'm sure it had a lot to do with who they chose as the actor for Miss Molly as sure. well. They wanted to give her as much screen time as possible. Absolutely. But at the same time, um, they, but in the book, they give her the MRS title. So she is apparently married. So you can assume she has a family, but you never see the family in the book. Right. And I, I like that. I think that it makes it more, it feels like she has a closer connection to Barbara. Uh, in a more professional relationship, if that makes sense. Exactly. So I think we've talked about our major annoyances with the movie. Is there anything else we're missing with the movie? I didn't like uh, The Wood Giant. I didn't like Miss Molly. Uh, The fight with the Titan was still pretty cool. Oh, yeah, they nailed that. I mean, the Titan looked great in the movie. Uh, And there's a really great excerpt in the book at the end where the artist talks about designing the Titan with the author and how many iterations they had to go through. And that's really a cool read if you pick up the book. Um, And I think they nailed that same kind of feel with the Titan in the movie. So I really enjoyed that. Um, I wish that they had done the fantasy stuff a little bit better, maybe with having it be less real to Barbara. Like I really liked the way they drew it in the the book with it kind of being more transparent. Yeah. Like see through and it's like, it's there, but it's not in the movie. It's very, it's very obvious that Barbara is the only one seeing these things, but they make them look super, super real and tangible. Yeah. I can definitely agree with that. So which medium did you prefer for this story as a whole? Oh, the book. As a written graphic novel or as a visual production in a movie? Hands down the book. Like, not even a question. The graphic novel is yeah. incredible. In fact, like, I rewatched the movie. The movie was very sad. I've seen it probably three or four times now, and I felt that same emotional connection, but when I read the book, I could just sit there and cry. Like, I just tears rolling down my eyes. There's something about the book that is just so much easier to connect with these characters. I wish I could argue with you, but I 100% agree. I don't know if we'll ever pick a movie over the book, and I'm interested for the one time we do. I already uh, know of one that I will choose the movie over the book, and it will absolutely shock you, I think. So we're going to leave what we're going to cover the rest of the season as a blank mystery right now. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, tune in every week. We're going to be dropping an episode every week, and hopefully, you know, we'll announce it probably so that way you can read it if you want, but you're not going to know until the week of. So I got a question for you, Adam. Sure. As my voice cracks. Did you, (laughs) did you, do you, I guess you could still, even though you're uh, in your mid to late 20s now, uh... Do you have any personal fears, something that you have to cope with even on a daily basis? So I wouldn't say I have to cope with this on a daily basis, because if I did, it would be very odd. And fear is not maybe the right word. Phobia is more of a better word for this one, because it's completely irrational. Uh, But since I was about 10 years old, I have been absolutely terrified of whales. 
like Whales? not wells that you fall into that you get water from, but those massive creatures out in the middle of the ocean. Something about those things, man, like especially that damn clicking noise they make. Oh, my God. Every time like I I used to have kids pick on me in high school that would find like I say kids. My friends would get like clips of whales and set my phone ringtone to be those weird clips of them making those noises they make just makes my skin crawl. I mean, like, oh, I can't even I can't even talk about it. That is pretty freaking hilarious. Well, and then like I live in the middle of Tennessee, right? The chances of me encountering (laughs) a whale, yeah, never going to happen. But when I was about 12, I went to Australia and we were going to go swimming on the Great Barrier Reef. And it had been mentioned that on the trip there, we may see whales. And it just broke my brain. I was like, what if they eat the ship? Which doesn't even make (laughs) sense, right? But like, I've never been on a cruise because I'm terrified a whale is going to knock the ship over. So did you watch Pinocchio as a child? I did, uh, and I don't think it was Pinocchio. I don't know what it was. It might have been Free Willy. Who knows? Free Willy, Pinocchio, read the Bible with Jonah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Jonah was a huge thing for me as a kid. So I don't know. It's a weird thing. And, you know, the way that I kind of, I don't want to say got over it, because I didn't really ever get over it. To this day, like, at the office, there will be times when people put on whale noises, and it just paralyzes me. I hate it. I don't, it's so freaky. They're aliens, man. But after this goes live, you're going to get so many whale pictures on Twitter. I hope so. At least then I'll know people are listening. (laughs) (laughs) If you're listening right now, tweet me some whale photos. That'll be great. Uh, But in order to get past that, I actually ended up getting a a whale tattoo. So I've got a tattoo of Wally the whale is what I've named him. He is a, uh, I believe it's a sperm whale or a blue whale. I'm not sure which one. It could be either or. He's in a suit. He has a top hat and he has a monocle and he's smoking a cigar. So I have made <laughs> whales relate to me uh, in order That's to get funny. past them. What about you, That's man? Great. Any any outstanding fears? Uh, so yeah, definitely came up with one. The first thing that pops into my mind had to deal with as a child, we something happened to the water at our house. So we had to go like to the place of business to go take a shower. And then I'd have to walk back at night after doing that. I can't remember why any of this happened. And I lived in a really rural area of uh, Louisiana. So our nearest neighbor was half a mile away. So really it was just our house, the place of business where my father worked. And we had this like one street lamp right outside of our house that would come on at dark. Um, So walking back from what we called the shop, uh, we would pass a barn. Uh, My grandfather built us a barn, even though didn't really have very many animals other than some goats, uh, had a barn. Um, And the street lamp was on the opposite side of the barn. So it was this deep, dark, dark shadow on uh, the area where I'd have to walk back home. So walking there, it didn't bother me, but walking back, I'd have to look into this deep darkness and I have a slightly overactive imagination. So I can imagine all the things hiding there and having to walk by it every night on the way home. And this is when I was in like junior high, maybe. Yeah. I was a little old to be as scared of the dark as I was. But I mean, wh- and I was frightened of it. Like, ugh. that fear makes so much sense, though, man. I mean, I feel like as humans, we have been scared of the dark since the beginning of time. I mean, we Hell created yeah. a fire so that way we didn't have to see right. what was there, or so that we could see what was hiding in the dark. I mean, that's like oh, an man. innate fear of us all. So, which fortunately is pretty much a whole lot of nothing. But 
Uh, and I still have the same problem today. Um, it's not that I'm afraid of the dark, but I refuse to watch scary movies because they only put images in my head of things that could be hiding in the dark. Yes. Like uh, little, little dolls with knives that want to come out and stab you. And I get it. People love those movies. I hate them. My wife loves them. I will not go to the theater and watch them with her. I encourage her to make other friends to go and watch those movies. We have the same problem, man, because now every time I walk up the stairs and turn off the lights, I assume there's like a little girl crawling up the stairs behind me, you know? Probably, <laughs> yeah. And guess what? I don't even know what movie you're talking about because I didn't watch it. Yeah. I don't want to know. I don't need to know. Exactly. So My imagination can make up plenty of stuff on its own. I don't need your help. Thanks. So that basically wraps up I Kill Giants. Uh, this is a great chance for us to ask for reviews. Every time you drop us a review on whatever podcast listener that you're listening to, it helps other people find us, and we want to make contact with as many people as we possibly can. If you're on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast app you're listening on, if you'll drop us a review, we will really really appreciate it absolutely um, and absolutely if you want to get in contact with us you can visit us on our discord server you can find a link you can find it in our description or you can find it on our website at backpationetwork.com but if you want to get in touch with us on twitter you can find me at wes the gm and you can find me at the real simso s-i-m-s-o and you can also get that iTunes review link in the description. So I've got it in there for you guys. Make it super easy for you. Just click it, five stars, and you'll be done. And if you hate Twitter as much as I do, you can also email us at fanmail at backpationetwork.com. All the links in the description. You can also visit our website, which is easy to find. You can actually Google us now. We have great SEO happening thanks to Adam. And I think that covers us for this week. We'll see you guys next week for Season 2, Episode 2 of Comic Book Cabinet. Thank you very much. Have a good night.